Okay, we are recording according to the recording. Er, recording, recordinger, recorder. This is going to be a long night, I can tell. Okay, we should pray, because I definitely need to. Father, thank you for the beautiful day. Thank you, Lord, for letting us be here, for giving us life, for giving us a relationship with you. And Lord, we've, we've done some really bad things with that. And yet you still stand by us. And we're, we're just in awe of your faithfulness. And so we pray, Lord, that you would help us as we strive to just get closer to you, to understand your word, and to be able to live it out. Help us to understand tonight, and help us to be faithful. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Well, for those of you who are listening online, uh, welcome back. So, last week, I appreciate Jim Hill stepping in for me. And uh, I actually was, what? What? Jim Hill. Jim Hill. Jim Bob Hill. Jim Hill was an elder in Beaverton 30 years ago when I served there. No, I just I didn't know there was a sportscaster name. Well, Jim Hill, thank you also for whatever part you had in that. Um, and just because I don't want anyone getting complacent, I have a new schedule for you. This is the third, although I didn't write three on it. So you just have to, yeah, either that or rip up the other ones. That would probably work as well. There you be. Um, if you look closely, you'll find the only difference between this one and the others, and I will send it tonight with the um, study guide that I sent, which I'll also hand out in a minute. The only difference is there is no FX in May. And uh, this is something that was a, a decision Callie made, um, and so we're going to do the FX thing probably now quarterly, uh, which means we probably have the last one for... Uh, this school year will start up again in September, October uh, for, for the FX. So whatever I'm doing then, probably the October one will be skipped for the class. But we will not from now on skip the first Tuesday of every month. So you will notice now that the first Tuesday of May is now one of our meetings. Now, if I led you into a trap and you had already programmed something else, I apologize. But... So instead of going to FX as I was encouraging you, you decided to just leave the state. Some people are just selfish. What are you going to do? Okay. So what that does is we are no longer uh, extending our uh, work into June unless we get behind, you guys want to, and then I will do it. So those, other, those two things have to be true before I will do that. Um, last week we did, you did, uh, Chapter 5. So... If you've got any questions on that, I'd be happy to try to address, but otherwise, kind of moving on to Chapter 6 tonight, and I always have a few extras just in case someone doesn't have the study guide, 
does anybody need the Chapter 6 study guide? Okay? And then since I'm doing these things instead of other things at the moment, just to be sure I don't forget it, I'm going to now pass out next week's study guide, which again I will also send to you. Um, and I apologize that we had arranged for this study guide to be sent to you, and uh, apparently I had not arranged it in a way that actually mattered, because then I understood that it had not been. That's why you, you got the electronic version of tonight's yesterday. Uh, I understand there was a, a version mailed. So, good. So for those of you who actually do use your mailbox still and go out there and look, then you may have found it. And please sign in just so I have a record. I try to do that at least every three or four weeks. So we're in Chapter 6. And as we go into that, I'm hoping that you have had the chance to actually study and look at the words, look at the meaning, the background, all of those things. So in order to make sure I scratch where it itches, do you have any questions regarding the study guide, words on the study guide, words I did not put on the study guide, or questions that I did not ask? Okay. So question six is what? So baptism and circumcision. All right, and you said seven? There is a tradition. Someone has to say seven if we actually have questions. So I appreciate you stepping up to that. I'm not real sure why, but that's just a tradition. Okay, how important is baptism to the Christian based on this passage? So import of baptism. By the way, for those of you who do study guides for Sunday, um, you will also find questions similar to this on the, the study guide for the sermon this Sunday, so the one you're doing for next week. Um, not entirely the same, but same general question, I suppose. Any others? What does reigning in our mortal bodies look like? Okay. So there's actually uh, two questions. Question nine. Reigning in our mortal bodies. And vis-a-vis -vis Christians sinning.
Any others? All right. Well, all of those, obviously, are in the flow of the, the text. So what I'm going to do is just go ahead and hit Chapter 6, um, and we can then deal with these as we kind of unravel them in the text. Now, before Chapter 6 is what? Yeah, it's amazing how that works. So, and actually, 1 through 4 as well. So what's been going on? Even for us, it's been a few weeks since we've gotten together, since I've had with you. What's, what's happened in Romans to lead up to where we are right now? on that a little bit with regard to the unbelievers and the fact that they're not necessarily unbelievers out of, it's not a matter of chance, not just something that happened. They're unbelievers because they decided not to believe and or because of sin. Okay? What else? That was chapter 1. to do that 
rather than just start out of the blue. One of the things that he's done, and it's going to become important as we look at the first question that's on the board, is talk about one of the signs of the covenant with Abraham. And that sign is circumcision. Um, circumcision had become synonymous with those who follow the law because where is circumcision? Yeah. It, it's, it, and the covenant is recorded in the law. As a matter of the first five books were considered the law. So the Pharisees emphasized this to an amazing degree. And even uh, a group of Christians called Judaizers emphasized it so much that they said, Gentiles can become Christians. And the reason they can become Christians is because Gentiles can, can become Jews. Only Jews can become Christians. But Gentiles can become Jews. So if a Gentile wants to be a Christian, a Gentile has to first become a Jew, which meant accepting circumcision, living by the law, joining the synagogue, in essence, doing all the things that Paul is saying, no, this is freeing us from that. If you want to see the most uh, clear argument, but also probably the most intense of that, in the New Testament then go to the letter Paul wrote to the Galatian church because he gets extremely intense in his arguing against them going to the law because they were Gentiles. And, and even those who were Jews in the synagogue in that region should not go back to the law. This is also something that's addressed particularly in light of Gentiles coming into the church in the conference in Acts 15 in Jerusalem recorded in Acts 15. So that's pretty important when Paul talks about the circumcision. That's the historical context of this. And these folks all knew that, and they were living it. All right. So we begin in chapter 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue to sin that grace may increase? Now, he's already asked something similar to that. So this is rhetorical. May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or don't you know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ, excuse me, Christ Jesus, have been baptized into his death? So start, stop for just a second. This, this very simple, very basic process, uh, uh, principle that if we've died to sin, how can we still live in it? Makes plenty of sense, right? Except, is there anybody here who has died to sin Okay? Because in Paul's, in Paul's vernacular, that means you come to the Lord. It doesn't mean you're perfect. And yet, how many of those of us who just raised our hands have sinned? Okay. One of the things that, that you pick up here, then, is something that is done throughout Scripture. Um, those who, who took the Greek class remember the extreme amount of emphasis we put on tense and understanding the implications of tense and particularly present tense and aorist tense. Present tense is a line, continual. Aorist is a point in time. So, pick a sin. Somebody just yell a sin out. Stealing. Stealing, theft. So, has anybody here ever been tempted to steal anything? Okay. I'm not sure I want to ask if you have, 
because then, you know, it could get into more information that we really want to start talking about. But, yeah, I think pretty much all of us have, right? I have stolen something in the past. Am I living a lifestyle of thievery, though? Am I living in that sense? See, there's a difference between I gave in to that. Even as a Christian, I, clearly, I, I honestly don't remember stealing anything as a Christian. I don't believe I have. If I have, I can't repent because I can't remember it. But if, if I did, I repent in principle. The bottom line is, we stop that, you see. And if we do it, it's because we become so overwhelmed with temptation at the moment, and then we come back to repentance, and we rely on 1 John 1, 9, which tells us, Christians, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Written to people like us, like them, who have already come to the Lord. Now, on the other hand, we all know people, well, maybe we don't all, I certainly do, I suspect you do, who literally have a lifestyle of stealing. It's not, it's not that they've given in to one temptation and they feel bad about it, but yeah, they did it. It's, no, that's, that's how they live. That is a, a, a habit, a pattern in their lives, and you don't see any hint of repentance. There's no indication that they have any intention of changing that, right? That's what it is to live in that sin. Now, you pick any other sin, the same thing holds true. We're human beings. And I suspect most of us could be, could be tempted to almost any sin. There's a few of them that, yeah, you have to be pretty strange and some, some things have to have happened to bend you in a certain way before you can be tempted to it. But generically, we can all be tempted to sin. But we don't struggle with the temptation to live a lifestyle of it. In fact, if we've come to the Lord, what we struggle with is, yeah, we're... We're tempted to do it. We maybe even did it, and now we feel horribly guilty. We repent. We still feel guilty, because even though the Lord forgave us, we typically don't that quickly, and we beat ourselves over the head. Does that make sense? So when Paul says this, he's not saying, how, how can it be that we died to sin, and yet we still ever sinned? Paul is not making the case that Christians should already be without sin or at least that they can be. He probably would say they should be, but no, he's, he's talking about those who have chosen this as a lifestyle. And that is consistent with what he writes in other letters and, and even some things you're going to see in the rest of this one. And then he says, or don't you know that those of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death. Now, again, he's, he's raising something to them rhetorically. Don't you know? Well, of course they know because they've experienced it. He's simply pointing out the meaning of something they've experienced. They've experienced baptism. Now, what is baptism? Not a trick question. Okay. Baptizo, the Greek word. Um, there is a funny story. Um, quickly told, it's, it's basically this. When the original translators of uh, the King James translated the, the New Testament into English... That was the first authorized, that's why it's called the authorized version, because before that, you got killed for doing that. 
Um, however, you also got killed for teaching something that was contrary to the teaching of the Church of England, which the king was the head of, you see. So now they come to this word. And everyone knows that word means to dip or immerse. It does not mean sprinkle. It does not mean pour. Everyone knows that. Who knows Greek? It's one of the interesting things, by the way. That still means that 2,000 years later in Greek. If you go to Greece today, that's what it means. Everybody knew it. And yet, the Church of England, because it, it broke off of the Roman Church, but it really didn't change many of its core beliefs. The only thing it really changed was both the, the idea of the Mass and um, definitely that the Pope was in charge because, no, it's the king. So, they sprinkle babies and call it baptism. And if those translators translate this immerse, they have just identified themselves as what were called Anabaptists at the time because Anna, negation, these are people who believe the other is not baptism. And so you should be baptized in the mind of the Roman Church or the Church of England again. What we do if somebody had been sprinkled as a baby, would be seen as baptizing again. We don't see it that way because we don't recognize the validity of something that's not true baptism. If they had taught that, if they had translated it in such a way that it could be conceived of that way, they would have been killed. I mean, there were literally people losing their lives contemporary to this. This wasn't maybe. This would have happened. So what they did is they simply gave English letters to the Greek word. Beta becomes B, alpha A, pi P, tos T, iota I, zeta Z, added an English E, baptize. It's not a translation at all. It's a Greek word that they refused to translate, and they just left the argument to us hundreds of years later as to what that meant. Now, the reason that's important is because baptism was a universal symbol. Well, universal in the Middle East, anyway. We know that the Persian mystery religions practiced baptism. We know that many of the Greek religions practiced baptism. We know that uh, the Jews practiced what's called proselyte baptism. If you were one of those who did move from being a Gentile and you became a Jew, after circumcision, you were baptized to show that the Gentile's dead and the Jew now lives. So the old dying, the new living, everybody got that symbolism. No mystery. When Paul then refers to it, he's referring to something everybody understands. So don't you know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? He died. So just like him, we go down, we die. Therefore, we've been buried with him through baptism into death. Death, by the way, remember in this context, specifically meaning death to sin. Because he's already said, we died to sin. So that as Christ, the Messiah, was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Okay? So that resurrection is something that also was pictured because we came up. We didn't get baptized and stay down. We're not still there. We came up. And so we were raised to a new life. For if we become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly 
we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Now, if you've read ahead just a little bit, you know why this is... I'm trying to make it sound intense because I fully believe Paul was very intense when he wrote this. And all you have to do is go on and read the 7th chapter, as we will for next week, and it's really obvious why. So, Paul talks about baptism, tells us about baptism, and the significance of the baptism. What is the significance of baptism? Not a trick question. Just went over it. Okay. Identity, but identity specifically with something. Die, death. Baptism is death. And resurrection. Both of those. That's the significance. It is both an identification and a proclamation. Going down, coming back up, new person. New person meaning in the future, I am going to live eternally. They, by the way, most of them believed that was going to be like, okay, now. Rather surprised them when they started dying and their bodies were dead. And then Paul had to, again, reinforce the resurrection. That no. Even Jesus said, a seed has to die before it is, is reborn into a new plant. Okay. So, us dying physically, yes, it's part of the curse. That's how that happened. It wasn't intended. But it did not short-circuit God's plan. It does not derail the fact that we will live eternally. That said, this resurrection to a new life is not simply later sometime. Because the context is talking about now. I'm dead to sin. And because I'm dead to sin, I'm freed from it. Because it was my master. I was a slave to it. But... When a slave dies, the master loses authority. The master does not have authority over a dead person. Because they're dead. Does that make sense? Okay, so let's go first to seven and then come back to six. The import of baptism. You guys tell me what you think. Why is baptism then important? Or how important is it? Number one, yeah, uh, Matthew 28, the Great Commission, go into all the world, as you're going into all the world, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I've commanded. So if Jesus is Lord, we do what the Lord says, and, and baptism is one of those things. Okay, what else? And it was a public identification. Okay? Now, baptism, there was never a thing when 
you know, you had to make sure there was at least 10 people watching or something. Um, if you wanted to be baptized, you would just come to the Lord and there's nobody around, and you still were baptized. Witness Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. There was no, well, there's nobody here. Let's, let's go find some Christians and we can do it all together. They just went down into whatever water was by the side of the road and put him under it. It was just that simple. Which leads to something else. Baptism was an initiation rite. Baptism was the first thing you did after believing and repenting. In other words, there's something going on inside of you that says, I want him, I want Jesus. The very first thing you do physically after that was baptism. You did not go to a class. You did not put it off for a year or two or five or until grandma can come from Georgia. You you just did it immediately and automatically. No one said, I don't want to be baptized, and yet entered the church. No one. In fact, in Scripture, there is only one person recorded who ever, uh, who we ever know was saved, was a Christian, and wasn't baptized. And I will grant you that I believe that principle is still true today, and I've actually seen circumstances where it probably was carried out. Can anybody remember the person? Thief on the cross. Man's nailed to a cross. Okay? His friend, apparently his co-thief, uh, they're caught together, they're sentenced to death together. Pretty harsh penalties. Um, the other one's mocking. He's joining all of the others and mocking Jesus. And this guy says, in essence, is paraphrasing, are you nuts? <laughs> We're dying. And you're going to mock this man? And he turns to Jesus and he says, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. So his expression to Jesus was an expression of faith. And what did Jesus say? Today, in paradise, the only person he ever said that to, today, you will be with me in paradise. So apparently, baptism was not required for the thief. Now what if somebody says to me, okay, so then you don't have to be baptized. What would my response be? What should my response be? <laughs> Maybe you should ask yourself why. I, I, by the way, I turned the air on just because it was so stuffy. Does anybody feel hot? Okay, because I can easily turn it off. So, yeah, this is maybe not an example I want to try to identify with, because to truly identify with it, I have to have someone nail me to a cross, or put me in some other circumstance where physically I'm dying immediately and cannot physically do anything. My history, uh, my family's history, not mine, uh, the coal mines in Appalachia. And uh, my grandfather was run over by one of those 16-ton carts that Ernie Ford used to sing about. Um, He was not killed. He was simply maimed. It was his legs and crippled for life. But others were crushed and killed. And as as they're gasping and they're dying, people would come up to them and inevitably somebody would say, you're dying, you need to be sure you're right with God. And someone else would say something like, come on. 
all these years sinning, he, now he thinks he can just turn to God? What's the answer to that? Absolutely he can. Absolutely he can. And in a situation like that, I would, if somebody said, well, can he go to heaven? Well, I don't judge, folks. But based on scriptural teaching, it sure looks like it. Now, but if somebody who's not in that position says, well, do I have to be baptized? My first question is, why is it you're asking me if you have to do something when you already know God wants you to? When you already know the king has said, do this. When the king says, do this, if you truly follow the king, you, you say, let's go. I mean, there, there's an energy for it. There's a, I want to do this if that's what he wants me to do. You, you don't have a list and say, what is the least I have to do? The person who does that isn't really Christian. The person who does that is simply trying to squeak by. Now, once again, I'm talking principles. I'm talking generalities. You will never, ever find me pointing to a certain person and saying, he's not saved, or he is. Because it's simply not an authority God has given to any of us. And I learned long ago not to try to take that for myself. But in ba- baptism is very important. And you would never find a Christian at this time who had not been baptized. Unless, of course, it was somebody who was dying and in the throes of death turned to the Lord. Just as, you, as the rest of Scripture. Is that making sense? So it is very important, both symbolically and as an act of identification, I now belong to the king. Everyone can see it. And by the way, when you did that and everyone did see it, you just mark yourself. If it was, excuse me, the, the, the persecutions were on again, off again, on again, off again, because they were very political things. If it was one of those times of more intense persecution, they were never totally off you're in trouble. You're doing something that, as it does today in many places of the world, could get you killed. We support um, missionaries in Indonesia. And they are proclaiming the gospel to people and asking them to come to the Lord. People who 90-some percent are, at least according to the government, Muslim. And if the government says you're Muslim and you convert to Christianity, you can be killed. That's the law. And that's the law in a lot of places. So when you're baptized into Christ, you're inviting some pretty serious difficulty. And that was true here. Now, what about baptism and, not in this chapter, but in the previous chapters, circumcision? What are the similarities, first of all? Okay, so they're both, in essence, uh, signs of, of entering into a covenant. The first, the Abrahamic covenant, and the second, the covenant that Jesus opened uh, and sealed with his blood on the cross. What else? Yeah, and... and and with circumcision, it was indeed a proclamation, albeit one uh, by the parents. 
that this is a child born into Israel. And this is a child, therefore, of the covenant. And that's why we're doing this. Because traditionally this would be an eight-year-old boy who was circumcised. Unless an adult, or for that matter an adolescent, decided to become a proselyte Jew. Um, and then whatever age they were, they're still circumcised. Yes. Yes. And they were indeed both acts of obedience to God. Both commanded by God. Any other similarities? Any differences? Absolutely, I think. Well, one of the funny things is that today um, the, the circumcision covenant is almost moot because in the Western world the majority of males are circumcised anyway. I really don't know how that got started, but it is true. Fortunately, that's still eight days old or you know, younger. We actually got a circumcision bill for one of our daughters, but I'm pretty sure that was an accident. Which reason is different Thank you. Baptism is for everyone, whereas circumcision was only for males. And of course, again, only males who were either accepting the law or who were being proclaimed as coming into the covenant meaning their parents were accepting the law for them. Okay. Uh, which also raises another difference, and that is in the New Testament. Circumcision was something that was done to a child, most of the time, who had no say in the matter and no belief in the matter. No commitment was being made by the child, because eight-year-olds or eight-day-olds don't make commitments. Baptism, 100% of the time, was of a believing, repentant person. Not necessarily a full adult, but if it was a, a, a minor, if you will, it was a minor who was old enough to believe and repent. So again, a pretty significant difference. Anything else? The one major thing that Paul is pointing out, and he's going to continue to develop this, and, and does in his other letters as well, circumcision is a sign of the covenant of law. Baptism is a sign of the covenant of faith. And that's a pretty big difference. By the way, just a fun word I put in, in your words. I'm trying to think of where exactly it was. I'm going to find it quicker over here on this. United in verse 5. Anybody look that up? Okay. And what does it mean? Yeah. Grown together because the original is planted together. And if you're planted together, you do grow together. 
united in a, in a depth, at an early time, in, a, in such a profound way that it's like two seeds planted together, and they grow up together as one plant. So entwined, you, you can't even tell them apart. That's a pretty powerful image and kind of a fun one. And so the reason I put that one in is because it was fun. What does the word freed mean? Freed from sin. That's pretty important. You say that with a question mark. There you go. Okay, and on what basis is that declared righteous? Did anybody look up more of the history of this word? There you go. Yeah, so the word vindicated could be here, um, exonerated. It was a legal term. It was, you know, this has gone to court, so to speak, and, and you are freed from the consequences of whatever you're charged with because you're declared innocent. So if you were under the, the threat of uh, servitude, they didn't really have a prison at the time unless it was political, and that was usually a dungeon where you waited to be executed. So if there was going to be a criminal thing other than execution, they'd simply sell you into servitude. You became, with the Jews, it was limited. You were more of a bond slave, but um, with the Greeks and Romans, you were a slave, period. Uh, you're, you're even freed from the sentence of death because if you were committing a, a crime that was a capital crime and this, this same legal process found you to be guilty, they took you out and killed you. You're freed from that. You're released from that. When we're freed from sin, we're freed on a legal basis based on Christ paying the bill, so to speak, and declaring us innocent. And we're freed from the consequence, the, the penalty, the final penalty. That's pretty important to someone who's trying to decide whether to stay freed. Okay. So moving on, verse 8, let's see, yeah, we're doing good. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin. Even so... Uh, a little bit archaic use of it, but it means um, even more, like, because of that. Okay, so consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus, which once again harkens back to the, the, the death and burial and resurrection. Because of that, verse 12, therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, so that you obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members 
as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Verse 13 again, because I think I might have skipped a prefix. Do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. Okay? Alright, so now we have another question. This question of sin reigning in our mortal bodies. It says, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust. What's the word lust mean? Desire. Desire. Okay. So lust, um, once again, we think of lust as what? Sexual desire, um, and is less positive. Well, the way we think of it. Okay. So when I perform a wedding ceremony, and I'm looking at this young man and this young woman, usually, and even there are older ones, I've done that too, and I'm looking at the way they're looking at each other. They're not looking at each other like... You know, there's something going on there. And usually I've done premarital counseling, and I ask them, there's something going on here? I presume something's going on here. We need to talk about that. Okay? And I don't say, you should be ashamed of yourself for being attracted to each other. That's just stupid. I'm attracted to Donna. I'm still attracted to Donna. Very attracted to Donna. But, is that lust? The way we think of it. The way it's usually used today. No, because it's considered legitimate because of the commitment of marriage. In fact, if I said to you, you know, I'm married, but, man, my wife just turns me cold. I don't want anything to do with her. How many of you would feel pretty positive about that? See? We expect this if it's a healthy marriage. And that's how God set us up. So we've got to be careful of this word lust. It's just it's a tricky word because it, it, we're reading all sorts of stuff back into it. It is simply the word desire. It can be good or bad. It can be for sex. It can be for uh, sunlight. It can be for rain. It can be for uh, a raise. <laughs> uh, think of whatever you want. The word applies. But in this case, Sin is reigning. What does that mean? If sin reigns, what does it mean? It rules. It has control. And it's my mortal body. That's this thing. Okay? So whatever my mortal body wants, sin is guiding it. And when it wants something and doesn't have it, sin says, oh, you should get it. And sin says, go get it. And if you think I'm making that up, go read James and what he says about sin and how sin is born. We have, or we want, and we do not have. And we don't ask, so we go after it. Okay. So sin reigning in our body pretty much means that whatever it's talking about in terms of the sin reigning to obey its lust is negative. And it's definitely not just sexual. It's far more pervasive than just sexual. It includes that. But it includes everything else, too. And sin is controlling the body in order to just fulfill anything and everything the body wants. 
Paul says, don't let it happen. <laughs> no, don't do that. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of right unrighteousness. You have, you've been buried. That, that person who did that, the sin itself is buried. And what ra- was raised is new, clean, forgiven. So why in the world would you do that? Mm-hmm. And the word natural is usually flesh. Sucks. Yeah. So how many of you have, have experienced the spiritual man or woman? In other words, the, the, that part of you that says, I want to belong to Christ. I want to please him. Okay? And yet alongside that, how many of you have still noticed that there's that part of you that says, but I want this. And whichever this is depends on who you are. We don't all have the same uh, sin desire. We, we have our own sin of choice, like a drug of choice. And that's what he means. So here what he's saying basically is, yeah, I get that. And the reason I know he's saying that is because I've read another chapter ahead. And I hear him talking about his own struggle this way. But he says, don't keep doing that. Now, once again, keep doing that means what? Tense. Present. Living in. So the, the best phrase that I can use to illustrate what he's saying versus what is going to be inevitable I say it is inevitable that you're going to sin. This is not, this is not excusing it. It's simply recognizing none of us is that good yet. Okay? So we're going to sin, but it's going to be the errand. It's going to be a point in time. We're going to do it. We're going to know that we did it. We're going to feel bad about it. We're going to repent. He's going to clean us up if we do that. And then we're fresh and clean and we start over. That's his promise for John 1 night. But if I'm living in it, if I'm letting it rain still, if I'm presenting my body, one of my sins, historically, has been anger and violence. So if I present my body to sin for it to fulfill the desire of the body with that sin, what am I going to do? And, and what's likely to happen with my body when I do that? What part of it would be sin? What? Yeah, I'm going to go smack someone upside the head. I'm going to go attack somebody. I'm going to justify it. But I was angry. I've heard that so often. It just cracks me up. How many people, how many people think they can, adjust, they can justify robbing a bank when they say, but I was greedy? So everybody goes, okay, yeah, I kind of figured that. Go to jail. But somebody hit somebody and said, well, but you made me mad. I was angry. <laughs> I'm sorry. You still sinned. See? Don't do that. Don't give your body to sin. 
Instead, give it to God as an instrument of righteousness. Say, Lord, I used to hurt people with this. So would you please take it and do something good for someone? And let him do that. This, this is the change, and this is the difference between someone letting sin reign in our mortal bodies and a Christian sinning. Now again, when I say a Christian sinning, I'm making an assumption. And I'll take you to 1 John 1, 9. It would be an excellent uh, additional reading for this passage. because in, uh, Not just 1 John 1, 9. 1 John, period. Because the whole letter basically says over and over and over, there is a difference between someone who says he's Christian but practices sin. And that, by the way, is a, is a very, very legitimate translation of the present tense for do. Practice. The difference between that person and the person who's, who's a Christian and falls to temptation and sins and then says, Lord, I did it. You know I did it. I, here I am again, Lord. Please forgive me. Clean me up. I don't know what else to do. Those are two very, very different things. One of those is a legitimate Christian, albeit a sinning one. The other one, according to John, is a liar and does not know Jesus. The one who's practicing sin, as opposed to simply falling into sin because of temptation, is lying when he says he knows the light. Again, read First John. You'll see that over and over and over. It's pretty much the theme of the whole letter. And it's something that we have a real hard time with because we want to believe. Anytime someone says, I believe, okay, they're saved, they're a Christian. It feels better. It is not true. It takes, by the way, far more than saying, I believe, to be saved, to be a Christian. Again, James, you say you believe, good. So do the demons. So there's something missing with just simply saying that. Okay. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. What then? Shall we not sin because we're not under law but under grace? So you just made that statement. And by the way, this is something that people have said, and I've actually heard people say this uh, in my ministry. Okay, so it's no big deal. The more I sin, the more God shows his forgiveness and love and grace. The more people see that forgiveness. I'm actually, I'm actually a good example of the gospel. The Jesus movement was full of this. I mean, we gave testimonies. We were bragging about sin. We can get up and try to outdo each other in terms of what we used to do or in some cases it wasn't quite used to. There's nothing to be bragging about. Okay. So, no. He says, may it never be. And again, that is an extreme expression. It's not just, you know, may it never be just seems wimpy to me. No way! You know, I mean, intense. Don't you know that when you present yourself to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one you obey either of sin, resulting in death, or of obedience, resulting in righteousness. So you've got two choices. You get to decide whose slave you're going to be. Did you catch the implication of that? What will you not be? If you're a slave, what are you? What are you not? You're not free. Paul 
Paul does not say you get to be a slave or you get to be free. He says you get to be a slave to sin or you get to be a slave to righteousness. Okay? So you, you choose your, yourself which one you're going to obey. But you're going to obey something. So when we start, start talking about freedom, the, the fact is there are a lot of people today who, for them, individual freedom is extraordinarily important, even in the church. Do not tell me what to do. Do not tell me how I have to live. You know? How many of you have heard the phrase, don't you preach at me? I've had people say that to me. Who pay me to preach? Make up your mind. What they're saying is, don't tell me how to live. Well, I'm sorry, that's, that's kind of part of my job. Because <laughs> the Bible tells us how to live. And while I'm not supposed to get it and beat you over the head with it, I am supposed to teach it. And, and when the Bible tells us how to live, I'm supposed to say that. So, no, Paul doesn't, Paul doesn't worship freedom. Paul simply says, you've got a choice. It's going to be God or it's going to be sin. Pick your, pick your choice. One of those is going to result in life and righteousness. And the other one? Your destruction. So which one do you want? So, do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you're slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Now, by the way, what is the word slave? It's one of those I asked you to look up. Okay. It's actually... Dula in this because of the ending, but Dulos is the lexical form. Yeah, I think that's it. So, what does it mean? Okay. And that's exactly how we hear the word. Because when we hear the word slave, what do we think? Yeah. And where do you get that? What historical reference does your mind go to? Yeah. Right. We, we all know that history. We didn't experience it, but we know it. So we think, in terms of doulos, or doula, exactly the way the Romans would and the way the Greeks would. But Paul was a Jew. And for the Jew, this word, unless they were basically referring to the, part, the fact that the Romans conquered them and enslaved them, in which case it's exactly what we just said, for the Jew, this meant bond servant. Now, what's the difference between a slave and a bond servant? Okay. Okay. So, number one, and by the way, where do you get that? Where Where is this said that you can do that? 
No. The fact that you can earn your way to freedom. What's the authority of that statement? No, 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 because one of you owns you, historically in this country, frequently tried to keep that and wasn't allowed to when the law stepped in. So it's the law. Yes, yes, because Paul, because Paul knows the law. The Mosaic law provided for this function. And you could do it voluntarily, or it could be done to you involuntarily in certain circumstances. And, and always, if you had the means, you could buy yourself out. But if you didn't, the maximum period of servitude was seven years. And the way it could be done to you is, for example, if you um, borrow something from someone and you don't pay it back. Okay. Now, a case could be made that that was voluntary. Because I'm the one that borrowed it. But the reality is I'm not saying, uh, would you give me uh, only $500 because I have every intention of serving you for the next seven years. No, I do not. I think I'm paying you back. But I don't. So the law allows servitude for um, the, the greater of which figure, either seven years or when that debt's paid. Okay. But the Jewish law does not allow for a Jew to be enslaved by another Jew the way the Romans did. It's simply not allowed. In America, we did have both, by the way. Um, but very, very rarely was an African given the rights of a bond slave. They were simply captured like war, uh, chattels of war. We defeated them, we enslaved them. That's how the ancient world worked. Um, but if I was in England and I wanted a new life, I'm the fifth son of a small country squire. There's nothing for me. There's no inheritance. There's probably no education. I'm stuck. Uh, what do I do? Well, I go sign... Articles of bondage with a ship company. They, in turn, sell those articles to some farmer or shopkeeper or whoever in the New World. And for the price of that, they ship me over there. I get passage. And then I now have to work it off. Okay. Um, and those laws, unfortunately, were not always as nice to me as the Jewish laws were. So as someone stated, when Paul uses this word slave, that we then, we, we say, I do not want to be a slave of sin. So I accept Christ and I'm baptized proclaiming that sin in me has died. The sin that reigns in me is dead. And I come up now. I commit myself to bondage, to righteousness, to God. And by the way, when you read the law, you'll find that that was for a specific period of time. However, if the person in bondage said, hey, I got a good deal here. This is a good job. I'm being well taken care of. I'm part of the family. Um, I've married another bond slave, and we have our own family. If, I'm, if I take my freedom now, by the way, I don't get to keep her. Because <laughs> the fact that I'm free doesn't mean she is. So, okay, my marriage is broken up. And besides that, what in the world am I going to do? 
no, I've got a good thing. So I would go to the master and say, I want to stay. And the master would take me over to a pole like that and drive a spike through my ear. And before you go, you people pay others to do that. I see it in your ears. Okay? They just had their ear pierced. And then they would put, uh, um, I think it was a ring, through the ear. And that symbolized that I work for him. And I do that because I decided to. Not because I had to. Not because I owed a certain amount of money. I decided to. So when Paul says he is the bond slave of Christ, particularly when he's been one for 20 or 30 years, it's because he decided to. And that's what he's telling us here. Okay. All right. Uh, picking up verse 19. I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your, your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. What is the word sanctification, by the way? Pardon? Okay. And what, why? What, what is set aside? What do you set aside in that context? Or why do you set it aside? Maybe. Yeah, but I don't think we would say our sin then is sanctified because we set it aside. That's get rid of. Set aside here means for specific use. Okay. For God's specific, that's what I was fishing for. Um, the word is made holy. Okay. And so when something was holy, it was something that was presented to God for his exclusive use. And remember the, the tabernacle and the temple. This is something that every Jew would totally understand. And the Gentiles would understand it because they did the same thing to, for their gods before coming to Christ and rejecting those. So everybody understood the concept. If this, um, this picture was to be used in the sacrificial uh, process, it had to be pure. You did not give a bent-up, filthy picture to God. It was a slap in the face. And now that it was given to God, it was to be for God's use exclusively. You did not take it back. You, of course, never sold it. This is made holy, sanctified for God. When we are sanctified then, we are made pure and we're set aside for God's exclusive use. So that word sanctification becomes really important because it's exactly what happens to us. And by the way, sanctified one would be translated in the old, in the old English. How? Say saint. So saint is not some special person some person who's been through some list of criteria that people put together. Saint is someone God has sanctified. God has set aside for himself. And that means every person who comes to Christ. By the way, even the Roman church believes that, and then they go ahead and teach the other thing with the saints anyway. 
figure it out. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Okay? Not worried about righteousness. Righteousness does not command you because you don't care. Sin commands you. Which, by the way, is important for you to understand if you're working with someone who today is a slave to sin. Because we have a tendency to think, well, you know, everybody's good. Everybody really wants to do right. That's just not true. There's a lot of people who do not. Okay? And the problem is, I can't tell by looking at them, I can't even tell necessarily by their behavior whether that's something they fell into and, and regret or something that they're practicing. But if they really are, then they're free of righteousness. Righteousness has no hold over them. Therefore, what benefit were you deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? In other words, those things that you, you did when you were a sinner that you don't even want to think about now, what good did they do you? For the, for the outcome of those things is death. But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification and the outcome eternal life. Those who have been sanctified, made holy. And remember, holiness is not based in our faithfulness or our behavior. God set us aside. Those are the ones who have eternal life. And then he makes a statement which has become an extremely uh, frequently quoted one and is the second step in the Roman road. Romans 6.23. You start 3.23, then go to 6.23. For the wages of sin is death. The word wages um, is, uh, it, it was the ration of a soldier. By, by volunteering and serving, this is what you are paid. This is what you get. The wages of sin is death. By serving sin, what you get is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ, our Lord. Christ Jesus, our Lord. He keeps using Christ Jesus, by the way, that which is, it feels awkward to us because we say Jesus Christ, right? But remember, Christ is not a name. It's a title. And he is putting that title first, and that is not incidental. He is a former Pharisee. He knows this person as Messiah. And that's the Aramaic for Christ. So, Messiah, Jesus, our Lord. I mean, right there is an amazing sermon. (laughs) Okay. Any questions? Comments? All right. Then... I think I am now paying you back all the minutes that I owed you for going over three weeks ago because you're getting out eight minutes early. I'm turning this off now, so don't keep 